You're listening to Solace Radio News. There is Cold War tensions between Russia and the United States and Europe. The United States wants to put a missile defense shield in Eastern Europe. Russia is highly irate about it. There's a number of things that the United States is doing that irritates Russia. And as a result, Russia and Vladimir Putin is rebelling. What Russia has decided to do is to release and provide nuclear fuel for Iran. Which means if we're fighting against Iran, we're fighting also against Russia. China is arming terrorists. New intelligence reveals China is covertly supplying large quantities of small arms and weapons to insurgents in Iraq and the Taliban militia in Afghanistan through Iran. So you get that? Who is supporting Iran? Russia and China. So therefore, if we fight in Iran, we are fighting also against Russia and China. It fulfills prophecy that when we divide the land of Israel, it brings about our judgment and our fall. American multinational companies are doing all this trade with China. All of our dollars are going over there. What is China doing with our money? They're building a military to take over Taiwan. They're building a military to confront the U.S. military, and they are supporting Iran. What's one of the big issues in the United States? It's immigration. Well, you know what the word Philistia or Philistine means? It means an immigrant. It means an immigrant. They fought with the immigrants. And Yahweh said that if you won't keep my commandments, then the Philistines are going to come and battle with you. If you won't keep my Torah, then you're going to have a problem with immigrants. And we have a problem with immigrants. Talk radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. Shalom and welcome to the Wild Branch Ministry and welcome to the Camels and the Well. Now I realize that uh, that title perhaps does not adequately describe what we're going to be doing here, so I'll elaborate just a little bit. I'm going to be taking Genesis chapter 24 verses 1 through 67 apart, basically verse by verse, uh, breaking down some of the words in this beautiful picture of the identity of the bride of the Messiah. And all the characteristics of the bride, I believe, are revealed in Genesis chapter 24 through this story of Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, at the time when Isaac is not in the picture here, if you will, the son, in which the, the, the father of the son, Abraham, sends his servant out, Eleazar, to find a bride for Isaac. And a lot of the details that are in Genesis chapter 24 are in the New Testament as well. So we're going to draw these things back and forth from the New Testament to the story of the woman in the well and and the story of the identification of Yeshua's family, who his true family is, just before Yeshua tells the parable of the sower and so forth. And we're going to relate these things back and forth. Now, what we're doing here is is sometimes, most of the time, called a type. We're going to talk about types. And many of you have probably heard and had lots of teaching on types and so forth. And so some of these things may be familiar to you, but I hope to add some things, a lot of detail that perhaps haven't been taught uh, previously. 
I, I was introduced to types uh, very early in my walk with the Creator. I, I was through these shadows and pictures that, that, from my personal experience, I came to relate more intimately with the reality of what the Scriptures, of how awesome the Scriptures are. When I understood what God was doing through these shadows and pictures, which, of course, is revealed in the New Testament as what these things were, the feast and the appointed times. and the But I, I submit to you that all of God's Word, even the listing of genealogies and the dietary laws and all these things are shadows and pictures of things that the Father teaches His children from the beginning so that we will all come together as one in the end because they, they, they've been revealed from the beginning to all His children. I learned these things actually before I ever came to understand any Hebrew roots or anything like this. I was I was convinced through my early teaching in these types and shadows that the only purpose, however, of the Old Testament was to predict the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. And that's the way it was traditionally taught to me, that I read these types and shadows, I see, if you will, Jesus. And that's the way I was originally taught. You go back to the Old Testament and you see that all these, this stuff was done to show you Jesus. Well, I think it's far more profound than that. As a matter of fact, one of the first scriptures that I put to memory in the teaching of types and shadows was Romans 15, uh, verse 4, which, which says, For whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, I was told that... This this verse was was showing that the entire Old Testament was only written to predict the Messiah and, if you will, even to warn New Testament believers of primarily what not to do. And that, that's the way it was originally taught to me anyway. I'm not saying everybody teaches it this way, but I was taught that that the uh, our learning part was really to look back and say, well, look what happened, look what they did, don't do that, and so forth. But as I actually began to read the New Testament, I believe this view turned out to be dead wrong. I, I, I think that those things that happened in earlier times were written to teach and instruct us so that we, as, as if you will, the wild olive tree, might have the same hope as they did in earlier times to teach us. And, and that is what the context of it. I, I'm going to read it again. For whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning that we... And Paul's talking about to his audience, and, and, and as he goes to Rome, and he, and he would include himself, uh, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, and what's he talking about? The Old Testament, the Tanakh, the patience and comfort, that we might also have hope. And then he goes on to say, now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to the Messiah, Yeshua. Now let's stop right there for a minute. We have a tendency to look at that kind of verse and conclude that what he's saying is that these things that are taught us in the Old Testament is supposed to make us like-minded in the Messiah, those of us in the New Testament. But I think the context of what he's saying here is that that we would be like-minded with all of those in the Tanakh as well, because it says, according to the Messiah Yeshua. Well, the Messiah Yeshua has been from the beginning, not the middle, he didn't start in Acts chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The Messiah, according to Yochanan, according to John and many other passages, is from the beginning. And he's been teaching us these things so that we all might be like-minded one toward another. I, I think there's too narrow of a view of that in traditional Christianity. Only us, since the cross, 
are to be like-minded one toward another. But I think he's referring to all of us from the, the very beginning. He says, wherefore, or excuse me, in verse 6 in Romans 15, he says that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Adonai Yeshua, the Messiah. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Messiah also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Yeshua the Messiah was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to you among the nations, and sing unto your name, and rejoice ye nations with his people. Praise Yahweh, all ye nations, and loud him, all ye peoples. And then he goes back and quotes from Isaiah these same things. The purpose is that we all may be like-minded one to another because of what we learn when we go back and read starting from the beginning. And I think this is the teaching that Paul has in Ephesians chapter 3 as well with the middle wall being broken down between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And once again, that we are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints of God, that the Gentiles may be fellow heirs with the saints. That's Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. Paul is being very consistent with his teaching from beginning to end. Paul in his epistles and Luke in the book of Acts are consistently pointing us back to the fathers and knowing and understanding the God of our, of our fathers. As a matter of fact, He's called consistently by Luke and Paul, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Paul brings up the fathers, the ancient fathers, and being like-minded one with them in Romans chapter 15. In Mark chapter 12, verse 26, for example, it says, And as touching the dead, they that rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, meaning the Torah, how in the bush God spoke unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so there's a couple of things he's teaching us there. One is that obviously he's trying to show us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. They haven't gone away. And that's the whole nature of the resurrection and so forth, that life has to come from life. And so he's saying that they are still alive. The only way I can resurrect them is if they are still living. I'm going to change them, but nonetheless, uh, he's going to raise life into life. Now, obviously, he's not talking about their bodies and so forth, but there's some aspect of when we die that keeps on living, obviously, because life produces life. The law of like kind keeps on being observed here. But the other thing he's saying is that he, uh, of the, those who are living, that would include you and I listening right now and his audience when Yeshua was speaking there, that that's who he's the God of. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's this, going to be this constant focus, even in the New Testament, of taking us back to the fathers. That in the latter days, thing, all things will be restored according to Elijah's ministry. And Elijah's ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. So the preparation for the Lord is to restore all things. And one of those things, which you're going to read in Malachi in a few minutes, is to turn back the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. So I submit to you that in the latter days, learning about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is part of the restoration. And that the seed, even that which we're talking about in this resurrection and so forth, is God's seed 
not man's seed. And we've talked about that many times before. And that God's children are produced by his seed. And his seed is not physical. Because physical is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why the parable of the sower is the most imperative um, parable, <laughs> imperative parable to understand. Because God's going to resurrect his seed. Now, another example of this knowing the God of our fathers, let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, because Luke is the one that's going to guide us back to Malachi, because he's going to be start out by quoting from Malachi. Luke verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17 says, speaking of Yochanan or John the Baptist, it says, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. And once again, keep in mind that Elijah's ministry, according to Yeshua in the book of Matthew, is to restore all things. So the turning back to the hearts of the fathers and so forth and the children is directly related to restoration in the latter days. He goes on in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, Remember, Miriam says, My soul doth magnify Yahweh, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. You're all familiar with this. He says, He is mighty that have done to me great things, and holy is his name, and for his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts and so on and so forth. And then he goes down to verse 54 and he says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So Abraham and his seed forever is directly connected to the fathers. And then he goes on in verse 68, and he says, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the ages began that we should be safe from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham. This is the God that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I submit to you that the New Testament is designed to restore us with the coming of the Messiah and the ministry of Elijah through John the Baptist to restore us back to the promises and writings and covenants, and the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Luke verse chapter 1, verse 17 is quoting, because I'm going to flip back and forth here for a, for a moment, quoting from Malachi chapter 4. Now, notice the way that this is midrashed, if you will. <laughs> Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day comes that shall burn like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now stop there and evaluate that for a minute. What is the context of this? The day of Yahweh. Behold, the day cometh shall, shall burn like an oven. This is always related to the great day of Yahweh. And, and the, the beginnings or the throes, if you will, of the messianic kingdom. And so the context is the end of days 
And then he goes on to say, but unto you, no, because he just got through saying, those who do wickedly, and we've defined wickedly many times in our words mean things and other places as meaning to destroy the design or purpose of something. God has a design and a purpose of all that he gave in the beginning. And he told our fathers to pass these down to our generations and to our children forever. God's people did not do that. And so when we start reading the New Testament, we see the beginning of the restoration of all things back to the way God designed them in the beginning. And so he has a purpose and a design for everything. If we destroy that purpose and that design, that is the meaning uh, of the word wickedness in English. You can't look that up in an English or Americanized Hebrew dictionary. You have to go back to the source of what that word means. So the contrast is the difference between those who have destroyed the design and the purpose of God's ways, and they will be burned up as stubble, to those who fear his authority. It says, fear my name, but shame in Hebrew means authority. Those who respect, if you will, and actually downright fear his authority, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Now, you have healing in your King James English. This is the, the Hebrew word marpe, and it's more appropriately translated as health, not healing. As a matter of fact, the Spanish version has it uh, properly as health as well. Now, remember the context that we're going to see this is all wrapped up with is returning the hearts of the fathers to the children, hearts of the children to the fathers. And he precedes this by saying that the son of righteousness with healing or health in his wings. Turn to Proverbs for a moment. Proverbs chapter 4 is an example of the use of this word, which we read in Proverbs 20, chapter 4, verse 20, starts out by saying this, My son, this is a father speaking to a child, attend to my words, incline your ear unto my sayings, let them not depart from your eyes, keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. One of the things that I've stated before, and I'll state again, I hope you bear with me in this statement, is that I do not believe that it is the Father's will to heal us. I believe that's a reaction that because he's a father to children who disobey him, I believe the Father's will from the beginning is that we live in health that we walk in health even as our soul prospers. You're familiar with that uh, in third, uh, third John, third John chapter 2. Let's turn there real, real quick so I can read this. You all are familiar with this, but I'll read it again real quick. In third John 2, it says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So we just read in the Proverbs that to take these words of mine and put them in your heart, within you, soul slash spirit, okay? And then, if you do that, then your behavior will follow that. So I believe that health is in the wings of the Messiah, and you shall grow up like calves in a stall. In other words, you shall be taken care of like a rancher's favorite cows. Not only that, but in verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Then, in context with this, listen to what he says. Remember the Torah of Moses. Now, remember what Elijah's ministry is to restore all things. And he's going to take us back to the fathers as part of that restoration. 
Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, or in Sinai, for all Israel with the statutes and ordinances. And remember Moses said that it was not only for all of Israel standing here, but those of you who are not standing with him that day. And keep in mind that these are the last words of at least what is the Christian Bible, if I can use that word, the last warning, the last words that closes the Tanakh, if you will, is remember the Torah of Moses. And what has the dominant religion in our country done? Started the New Testament by saying he did away with the law of Moses. It's just incredible. But let's go on. He, be, he goes on to say, behold, I will send you, because I think he already knows because God's smarter than we are. He already knows that you're going to depart. He already knew that his own people uh, that would be reflected through the Jewish leaders when we get to the New Testament would turn away from, from his commandments. So he says, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. So that's going to be, can you see all the things that are part of Elijah's ministry? The idea of restoration, which Yeshua said was Elijah's ministry, in preparation for him involves turning the heart of the fathers to the children. Now, I believe that's accomplished when the fathers will all of a sudden uh, in the latter days here, all of a sudden we have this remnant of people called Messianics or Hebrew Roots Movement or whatever that are chastised and condemned or, and, and called legalists and so forth by the dominant religion in our country. They want to bring back the teachings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, and, 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 and so on and so forth, bringing back the fathers to the children, and it's rejected and resisted when this is supposed to be the ministry of Elijah. But it also goes on to say, as the result of that, I believe, is that the heart of the children will return back to the fathers. Like kind is going to beget like kind. But notice how it is midrost, if you will, when you get to the verse, uh, when you get to Luke. Knowing what his own children did, he's going to return the hearts of the fathers back to the children. But it's not quoted that way in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. See, so the midrash on that is that the turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers is the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. I believe there will be a restoration of these things from the beginning of these fathers back to us today because we need to learn and understand from them so we might have patience and hope in the scriptures. And so we must understand that those fathers back then are our fathers. They're our fathers. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul is uh, speaking to the Gentiles, if you will, in Corinth, he says, moreover, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking about God's seed here. The constant focus of scripture is to God's seed, not man's seed, but our father's seed, constantly wooing his children back into the house. God begins with a house and a family and a piece of land. 
I've talked about this many times before. This picture of where the source of all Hebrew words comes from is a house, a family, and a piece of land. And so we have his children constantly wandering away and doing their own thing. And so that's why when you read this, the parable of the prodigal son, you read the parable of a, of, a, of a son who was with his house, his family, and his piece of land. And then he wanders away and goes out on his own. And then he figures out that something's wrong with this picture, if you will. And he doesn't, he doesn't do what is normally taught in our religious system of today with respect to repentance. He doesn't turn away from the direction he's going. See, we normally teach repentance as to turn away from something. That's not what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance, shuv, is established in the first four chapters of Genesis where the teaching of everything else in Scripture is at, those first four chapters. When Adam is uh, came from the dust, and from the dust he shall shuv, return. Apostrepho is the same word as Elijah shall restore all things. The Bible says, Elijah shall restore all things. That is apostrepho in the Greek. It is shuv in the Hebrew. Bring them back to where they came from, not turn people a different direction. So in Hebrew thinking, those people who wrote the Bible... To restore, to return, to repent is to go back to where you came from. And so we have the prodigal son going back to the house, the family, and the piece of land. Did you notice that? He just didn't wander off somewhere else. When he realized that, uh, that he was, uh, uh, what he was going through and how he was being cursed instead of blessed, he went back to the house, the family, and the piece of land where he came from. This is the constant picture of Scripture from the very beginning, God always speaking to his seed, to his children, and his children, according to Romans chapter 9, verse 8, are not children of the flesh. It says in Romans chapter 9, verse 7, that, or starting in verse 6, that not all Israel is of Israel, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham, meaning the physical, are they all children of God, is the context here. For in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, they who are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so they wandered away from the teachings of the Father. And so the whole act of restoring in the latter days is to bring the hearts of the fathers, the true teaching of the fathers, born from their hearts, back to the children, and that will turn the hearts of the children, the disobedient, according to Luke's version, back to the fathers. And so we are going to take apart Genesis chapter 24 and read uh, uh, this beautiful story of Abraham and Isaac. There's the God of Abraham and Isaac. Who, and, and so he can restore something back to us in the latter days so that we might learn from it, so we might have patience and hope in the scriptures. Now, as I said earlier, there's going to be two, uh, particularly two sets of passages in the New Testament that we're going to kind of go back and forth with. And I want to read a little bit of it before we uh, get into it here. One is in John chapter 4, and you're familiar with this. This is the parable, or this is the teaching uh, of what's uh, called the woman at the well. And we will go back and forth with this as we get into Genesis chapter 24. And also, I want you to keep your finger, if you will, or a bookmark, whatever word you want to use, in Matthew chapter 12... 
just uh, the, the passages before the teaching of the parable of the sower. Remember that the whether whether the New Testament is written in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, no matter which one of those languages you would choose, uh, either one, uh, there was no uh, chapter divisions and and commas and so on and so forth in these original documents. And so we're the ones that have decided that perhaps contextually chapter 13 is separate from chapter 12. But there's something very interesting told. As a matter of fact, I'm going, going ahead and read it now. Before we get to the parable of the sower, the most important parable of Scripture, in which we have the identification of who God's children are. That's what the parable of the sower is all about. They are his seed, and his seed is his word. So God's children are children of his word. And so he identifies this and sets this up at the end of Matthew chapter 12. And here's what he says. You're familiar with this. Starting in verse 46, he says, While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside desiring to speak with him. Now this is his, if you will, through Mary, through Miriam, his flesh and blood mother and his flesh and blood uh, brethren. And he says, Then one said to him, Behold, your mother and your brother stand outside declaring to speak with you. And he answered and said unto, said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and he said, Those who have chosen by an act of their own will, obviously except for one, to follow him and listen to his word, behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. So the teaching here, before we get to the parable of the sower, which involves seed, remember, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, he's reminding us who truly are his seed, his mothers, his brothers, and so forth. They are those who choose to follow him and his word. And we're going to see this beautifully displayed in the story of Abraham, Eleazar, and a bride for Isaac. Okay, let's jump right into it. We are in Breshit, chapter 24, verse 1. Let me remind you, because I've been asked this before, that the Bible that I'm reading from is a King James English. However, it is a Schofield Bible. This is the Bible. Some of you may be shocked by that, uh, as much as I despise dispensationalism and the evolutionary uh, foundation of dispensational um, teaching, that C.I. Schofield is, is one of the fathers of dispensationalism. I, I quote from this Bible because every time I wear out a Bible, uh, when I go to get a new one, uh, I get the same one because all the passages are in the same place. No matter what version I'm reading, I'm going to take it back into the Greek and to the Hebrew anyway, so it really doesn't matter which version I start out with. But just to let you know that that is the Bible that I'm reading from. It begins in 24 verse 1 by saying this, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. So I first want to remind you that we, once again, are Abraham's seed, and Abraham was blessed in all things. So when we go back and read Breshit chapter 12, it's, and starting in verse 2, it says, speaking of Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is Abraham's seed, the paradigm or model of Abraham's seed, who we are told by Paul we are is based, of course, on Abraham. 
and the pattern or the model of Abraham, our father, that's what children do as they pattern themselves after their fathers, is that he first believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then, according to Genesis chapter 26, which is going to be just a couple of chapters after we read this story, in 26, then it says, I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, Genesis 26 verse 4, will give unto your seed all these countries, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And he says it again, to put it into context of Genesis 12, 3, why? Because Abraham, why is he going to bless all the nations? Because he produces, because God's seed is in him, he produces the fruit of that seed, and in that fruit is another seed. So, How did he produce the fruit? By obeying my voice, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah. My Torah. And so that's why he's able to bless all the nations is because, now these are important things because this is going to be brought up as the identification of the bride for Isaac when we get in to the rest of Genesis chapter 24. So just a reminder of the fact that Abraham was blessed in all things, and we come forth from Abraham. Abraham's physical seed? No, that was never the point. God's seed in Abraham blesses all the nations of the earth, and it's God's seed in Abraham that Isaac is going to receive. That's why in Isaac shall you be called. What was in Isaac? God's seed, the same seed passed down from Abraham. Now, the physical seeds of Abraham went into Ishmael and Isaac, But Ishmael was the result of disobedience by Abraham with Hagar. And so one seed is the seed of obedience. The other one is the seed of disobedience or not listening or not following the father. Why is it so important? Because if you follow the father, that's your fruit. And in the fruit is the seed, Genesis 1 verse 11. And so I submit to you that the pattern of this seed as seen in our model of Abraham, our father, since we were Abraham's seed, is first the seed. That's something that has to be given to you, then the fruit. So it's an agricultural principle that we see operating with God's seed in Abraham. First, Abraham believed in God, and there's how he received the seed. Then he produced the fruit, and in that fruit is another seed. Now, that paradigm of both the seed and the fruit, once again, is going to be seen in the story uh, of Isaac, or Abraham and Eleazar and Rebekah here. He goes on in verse 2. In Genesis 24, and he says, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, your hand underneath my thigh. Now we have to go back to Rashid 15, Genesis 15, verse 2 and 3, in order to get the identification of who this servant is, this unnamed servant that we read about in Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis 15, 2, it says, And Avram said, Yahweh Elohim, what will you give me, seeing as I go childless, and the heir of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own loins shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven. And count the stars that thou will be able to number him. And he said unto him, so shall your seed be. And he believed in Yahweh and it was counted unto him for righteousness. There is your 
belief in something to do with the seed. Now, the word seed, of course, is identified as the word of God. So we trusted and did what the word of Yahweh said. That's, that's the whole point of trust. At least it started out that way. But nonetheless, so the one who is his seed shall be of his own loins. We'll get there in a minute. Let's talk about Eleazar, this servant of the house, which is mentioned again here in Genesis 24, verse 2, the eldest servant that ruled over all he had. Eleazar is a contraction of two Hebrew words, El, you of course are familiar with, Azar, El Azar. Now, that is generally translated as God my helper, or my helper God, or something like that. El, God, of course, and Azar, which is an ayin, a zion, and a resh. So it's generally seen as God is my help or helper. Now we're going to read all about this helper, sometimes called the comforter or parakletos in Greek, also one who comes alongside of is one of the titles of, of God's helper here. We, we of course have the first occurrence of this word azar, which is part of his name in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Of course, that's the helpmate of Adam, if you remember. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, you're familiar with this. It says, And Yahweh said, It is not good that man shall be alone. I will make him an help fit for him. Now, that is Hazar, this word Hazar here. Now, the idea is for someone to come alongside. That's also the meaning of comforter in your your New Testament. Parakletos, to come alongside of. Now, obviously, we know that Chavah came from the side of Adam as well. And so the idea is to is is to come alongside of and help someone. And so that's part of his name and we see that also in Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews 13 verse 6 just to bring this back into the the uh, New Testament. The word in Greek there for help in Genesis 2:18 is boethos. Boethos. That's the Greek word used there. In Ivrim, or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, it's used when it says, so that we may boldly say, Yahweh is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And then we read it again in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25. Matthew 15, verse 25. Where here we read, Then came she and worshipped him. That's, that's talking. This is the woman with the crumbs and the whole thing saying, Yahweh, help me. And this is one of the reasons why it's imperative to understand that the Holy Spirit is the demonstrative active presence of God. It's a word that's used in Scripture, Rak HaKodesh, to describe the active demonstrative presence of God. In other words, it's, it's used as a, as, as in, in God doing something, in acting. The first occurrence sets the tone for this. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So the, the ministry of, of, of the Holy Spirit in understanding that he is God manifested as acting, it, it chooses a different word to express his action in the world. And so this happens to be a major part of this person's name, Eleazar. Now, I also want to suggest to you that this is also a possible contraction of two other words I want to bring up. And that is the fact that El 
Aleph Lamed means power or strength. We've talked about in the past how this has a, a very concrete root to it, a yield of a ram. So the idea of a ram is also directly associated with the background of Elohim. Because a ram is something that demonstrates, especially if you've ever seen two rams collide together, demonstrates right in front of your eyes something very concrete, something very powerful. And of course, this is a severe understatement, obviously, but it is something on earth that pictures something in heaven that we can't see. A ram is something we can see. And so it's used as the base of Elohim. So we have this idea of strength. And then we have the word zur. Hazar, the, at the end of that, is a Zion and a Resh, which is Zur. Zur, or even Azur, is, is, is a stranger, or it's sometimes translated as a foreigner or a stranger in your Bible. But the idea of a foreigner or a stranger is taken from the idea of being outside, that which is outside. The picture is of the tabernacle in which uh, those who are of the Father can come in to the courts and so forth that, you know, only the high priest can go in the most holy place and the, and the priests go into the holy place and, and the people are outside in the court and those who are outside the gates of the tabernacle are the strangers or foreigners. And when there are strangers or foreigners that, that are, are not looking toward the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're generally called zur in Hebrew, whereas a ger is generally used in scripture to describe a stranger or someone on the outside that wants to come inside. That's how those two terms are generally used. Zur, outsider. Ger, outsider who wants to come inside. But Zur is an outside. It does mean outside of. And so this word Eleazar can mean, remember, representing the Holy Spirit here, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, can mean strength that comes from outside. A strength that comes from outside yourself, if you will, can also uh, be uh, the meaning of Eleazar. So I'm submitting to you that the, the context and all the backgrounds and foundations of this word Eleazar implies or points to the ministry and work of the unnamed servant who is going to go find a bride for Isaac here pretty soon. And this idea of coming alongside to help someone. John 14 verse 16 if I can comment on this for a few minutes, just after Yeshua says, if you love me, keep my commandments. How? Through the power of your helper, through the power of strength outside yourself that now is within you, that now comes to be in you. And so that he that was within you is God himself. As a matter of fact, Yeshua says a very interesting thing here in John chapter 14. He follows that by saying, and I will pray the Father, now in our story here, this is Avraham, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you. How long? Forever. He says, I shall give you another comforter. Now that word another in Greek, there are two words that are expressed as another in Greek. Heteros is the one we may be most familiar with because we get the word heterosexual from that. Heteros means uh, different. Hetero means different. And so a, a different kind is what's being spoken of. So it's translated as another. So heteros would be used if we were speaking of another in kind. But Greek employs another word that means another of the same kind. 
That is alas. That's the word that's used here. I will give you a comforter of the same kind. Now notice he backs that up in the next verse, two verses. Listen to what he says. Just to, just in case the Greek words don't quite um, uh, make a difference to you here, listen to how I believe he backs it up in the next couple of statements. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I, who's speaking here, Yeshua, will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, this is some of the bizarre statements that are made that lead a lot of us to divide ourselves in the Hebrew Roots Movement and Christianity and Judaism and these three main Bible-oriented religions in the world, all arguing with each other, uh, trying to understand the nature of Yeshua and his relationship with the Father and the Spirit and all that kind of stuff. And we come up with all kinds of bizarre theories and conclusions trying to uh, understand and grasp this infinite God and creator that we worship. And so we divide ourselves among three-dimensional finite human beings over something uh, infinite that's uh, fundamentally indescribable in human terms. And so we read things like this and we get all confused and so forth. And quite frankly, we all try to take something physical and describe God in the best way we can, but it's always going to fall short. He's, he's speaking here and he says that he's going to send you another comforter. And then he turns around and he says, because he's leaving, he says, but I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And so I, to try to understand the mystery of this is, is something that is um, not easily done, obviously. But then he goes on in verse 26 and says, these things I've spoken unto you being present with you, but the comforter who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my authority, is what he's talking about here. He shall teach you all things. And what is he going to do? He's going to bring all things to your remembrance, what I have said unto you. And so here we have uh, turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So, and then turning the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. So the Holy Spirit within us brings back all these things to our remembrance. And I believe he's doing this in the latter days, even as we speak right now. Now, in Genesis 15, he does say that my heir, the one that's going to be the seed here, is going to be from my bows, come from my own bows. Now, that word there is me'ah, me'ah in Hebrew. It is a mem, an ayin, and a hay, and it, it does mean inward parts. Let me give you some context here. Genesis 25, 23. We have the same word used when, when we're talking about two nations in her womb, Rivka's womb, two manner of people uh, in her bowels, within the inward parts. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12, and when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, even in the passages that I've read so far, you have to you have to ask yourself, is he talking about based upon the revelation we have in, in Romans and the parable of the sower? Is he talking about a physical seed here? Even in the in Second Samuel that we just read, is the one that's being spoken of that his kingdom shall be forever and so forth, is that talking about a physical seed? I do not think so. It's within him. Remember, in Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, in Abraham is also 
Ishmael, who's not blessing anybody. It's Isaac that he's speaking of. And it's not the physical that blesses. It's the word of God that blesses. And my words are spirit and they are life. So what I believe is being talked about in him is the word of God, trust and faith and so forth. Now, another example, Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. Same word, not translated as bowels or inward parts, but here's what it says. I delight to do your will, O my God. Yes, your Torah is written within my meah, within me. Once again, now he's talking about the word that is written in his bowels. In Ezekiel 3, verse 3. Ezekiel 3, verse 3. It says, and he said unto me, son of man, eat and fill your stomach, bowels, with this scroll I give you. So he's talking about putting something within him is what he's talking about. Now, this Greek word behind this is koilia, koilia. So we see an example of that in John chapter 3, verse 4. So now we go to the New Testament, the same word, koilia in the Greek, John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, he's using it in a very physical sense here, but Yeshua is going to remind him that that's not what he's really talking about here, is he? See, that's always the mistake. Yeshua is going to go on to say, Well, no, wait a minute. Or You're a teacher and you don't understand what I'm saying here. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh. What's he saying? Flesh only produces more flesh. And flesh does not enter the kingdom of God. That's crucial in understanding Rebecca and Isaac when we get, we get to it here. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is the law of like kind that we understand as hard empirical science today that Yeshua is verifying since he's the one that came up with the law in the first place in the very beginning. Produce after yourselves. I created you perfect in the beginning. Now go forth and multiply after yourself. I've made you just the way you should be right off the bat. So multiply after yourself. And then Yeshua goes on in John, Yochanan chapter 7, verse 38, to say, to put some more context in this again. He that believeth on me, as the scripture have said, out of his koilia, mea, out of his innermost self shall flow rivers of living water. That's what's really being spoken of here in these texts. And I'm going to submit to you to verify what he's talking about. He's going to make a very strange oath here. And he's he's going to say, put your hand under my thigh. Now, this is a Hebrew idiom that refers to the place, the oath has to do with the place of my descendants, because that's where the uh, yarak, that's the root of the word here, thigh, yarak, that's where the place of the descendants is. The word yarak is loins, it's also um, the shaft of the menorah. The same word is used in the tabernacle to describe the, the center shaft that comes up the menorah. And so the idea is that all the other branches kind of spring out from that one. And of course, we all know that that's the, that's the servant, the one that's lifted a little higher than the other ones, than the other um, six, and that it is a picture of the Messiah, the light of the world and so forth. And that's the one you pick up and light the other ones with. 
in the menorah, and when you have your Hanukkahs and so forth, then you have nine of them. The center shaft is still the same kind of picture that you light all the other ones off of, implying that your light comes from that. You have no light in and of yourself. Well, that's a beautiful picture of, of what we're talking about here as well. It only comes from that center shaft. There's only one shaft. There's only one seed from the very beginning, and that is the Messiah. And so this oath that he requires them to, him to take is, if you will, saying, I, will, I swear on my children and my children's children's children. You've heard those kind of oaths before. This is literally called the oath of the thigh. And once again, this word, yarak, yaraki is the word that's used here, is an area that extends to and includes also the groin area. And this is referring to the place of descendants once again. It's an agreement, if you will, between two people that is sealed with the promise that the inheritor of a father's goods and debts and contracts and promises will be carried out by the son. In this case, however, the inheritance concerns the promise of a seed that would continue through his own kindred. And so he's making him take an oath that is seen involving descendants down the line. And so that's all in context with the seed and Abraham's seed. And who will it be? The same pattern of Abraham. Those who came, who come out from the nations just like Abraham did. Now, we're going to see later on that because of the division of the house of Israel with the house of Judah, that his people, both houses, are scattered throughout the nations. They've all got, if you will, have to be grafted back in. Everybody's scattered and have to come out from the nations because we're all scattered among the nations. Even when you see the, the, the Judah going back to the land in the past uh, first, Judah going back to the land first in the last 60 years, they're also coming out from the nations to come back to the land. So the pattern of God's people or Abraham's seed will be those who have been scattered from the nations and you will, just like Abraham uh, was, the same pattern coming out from Ur of the Chaldees into the kingdom, if you will. So I submit to you this same shaft is in Revelation chapter, at the end of Revelation chapter 1, into Revelation chapter 2, and who is God's assembly? And the symbol of God's assembly is the menorah that all the branches get, come forth from the center shaft and that they get their light that they pass on from the light of the center shaft. This is the picture of the seed of the woman brought forth from the beginning. So as I've said so many times before, from the beginning, there's never been a difference between Jew, if you will, and Gentile in the body of Messiah. There's never been a difference. No matter where you came from, if you, if you followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you were in the body of Messiah because the Messiah is from the beginning, not the middle. So Abraham is going to send out his eldest servant, this unnamed servant, that only when we go back to the beginning or much further back, do we have the identification of who that is? And I submit to you once again that that's the way everything else is in the New Testament as well, that we, that we need to go back to the beginning. That's why the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was given to bring back his words unto, so we can speak and act in behalf of them. Remember, that's what the word remember means, zakar, 
to act and speak in behalf of these things. So we find out by going back who this servant is. He makes an oath that has something to do with his descendants down the line, who they really are. And then in verse 3, he says, I will make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now, this is going to be the beginning of the picture of the gathering of the exiles in the end of days as prophetically God telling us where they're going to come from. The continuous teaching that all who come to God are grafted in. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Once again, we've talked about this in our Romans series. 9 through 12 says, Who then? Are we better than they? No, in no way. For we have before proved that both Yehudim and Greeks, if you will, Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Both houses are unrighteous. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. And there is none that doeth good, no, not one, and so on and so forth. The picture of the fact that they're all going to be scattered out in the same place, if you will, that Abraham came from. Why was Eliezer not to go to the place where Abraham dwells? Did he just not like those people? No, to teach that just because you are in the land, i.e. the loins of Abraham physically, does not mean that you're in the kingdom. Canaan was the land that Abraham was taken to. So they're not going to come, if you will, they're not already in the light. Yeshua did not come to save the righteous, but, but sinners, instead to save the lost. And we're all lost out there. And so the idea is everybody has to be taking, taken from something to something. And because everybody is in darkness. And that's the picture that's being drawn here as to why he did not go into the land representing the, the covenant and so on and so forth of where Abraham uh, dwelt now. Because every person that comes to the Father comes from darkness into the light. So you have to go to the darkness to bring people into the light. It's one of the, again, one again, once again, one of the reasons why Yeshua and Nicodemus are meeting in the, at night. It's the reason why it reveals that to you in, in John chapter 3. Everybody comes from darkness into light. Once again, Abraham is the model of what faith is. And he came out. He became the father of the Hebrews by faith, not because he had the physical seed. There was no uh, Israel. There was no Jew or Jewish or any of that stuff before Abraham. Abraham is going to set the pattern of the model of what it means to truly be a child of the kingdom. So God does not go to the light to search for the lost. He goes to the darkness. Just because they are of the land does not mean that they are of the kingdom. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 9, 7, and 8. This continues to teach who the true firstborn is because the firstborn, in Exodus chapter 4, 22, it says that Israel is my firstborn. Well, Israel is Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes. And his father, Isaac, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was Isaac's firstborn, but Israel, or Yaakov, was God's firstborn. 
That's why he says, Israel is my firstborn. And now in Genesis chapter 24, we're about to learn the identification and characteristics of the grandmother of all of the tribes of Israel. And so since this same pattern is going to be passed down from one generation to the next, the same pattern of, of coming out of something then, and then obeying God's commandments, and then it has a seed in it, and then it produces fruit, and in it is another seed. He's, in verse 4, he says, But you shall go unto my country, unto my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. So the picture is that he's going to go get the bride and bring it to where the son is. And so that's why in the next verse when it says, And the servant said unto him, Suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. In other words, suppose they reject this idea of going to where he is, not he where they are. Must I needs bring your son again into the land from where you came? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that, that you do not bring my son there again. Now, the picture that is being drawn here is of the two trees in Romans chapter 11, that the wild olive tree goes to where the natural tree is engrafted into it. So if, if, if the wild olive tree refuses, you're not going to take the natural and bring it into the wild. In other words, the land of the Ur of the Chaldees, Gentiles and so forth, right where I came from. But you're going to take them and bring them to the sun, to where the sun is, the natural tree. That's the picture being drawn here. And I do not believe that the sun will be returned until all, in other words, he's not going to return without his bride. Yeshua will not return until all the exiles are gathered and he will not lose one. So he's saying, suppose they will not go with me. Then the bottom line is that the son will not shuv. It says bring. Do not bring not my son uh, there again, verse 6. But the word once again is shuv. It's translated as return many times in your Bible or repentance, as we will know, teshuva, but he will not return. Uh, and so I believe that's a picture of him saying that he will not, he will not come back until all the exiles have come out. In other words, until all his bride has come unto where he is, if you will, and then he will return. Uh, Yochanan chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. That's John chapter 6, verses, verse 37. Also, we read in 10, verse 27 of John, 10, 27, says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I believe this is also the background of the whole concept of being led by the Spirit and so forth. Remember, we were reading in John chapter 14 that this very strange mystical relationship between Yeshua and the Holy Spirit as well, when he tells us very clearly that he's going to send another comforter, and we read later in verse 26 that that's the Holy Spirit, and then he turns around and says, because he's leaving, if you will, and he turns around and says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. This is going to be seen through this entity, and I'm using that word on purpose, I don't want to use the word person, called the Ruach HaKodesh, who will go get the bride and bring her to the son. And since this is a bride we're talking about, I submit to you that is, it is all the I wills that are going to come. All those are going to come out of the land 
which Abraham came from, which is the land of the strangers, the foreigners. Everybody has to come up. The land of darkness, everybody has to come out of that. It's all the I wills that he will bring back with them. And we have examples of this all over the place. Uh, You're familiar with this book, but let's read a couple of these anyway. Ruth, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, nor turn away from following after you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. She's an excellent example of it's from the beginning is what I'm trying to say. It's always been the whosoever's. And also continuing on in Ruth chapter three, verse five, when it says, and she said unto her, all that you say unto me, I will do. So it's all the I wills. These are bridal terms. These are betrothal terms. He speaks and we respond with, I will. Second Samuel twenty-two four. Second Samuel. This ought to be a very familiar chapter. Says, "I will call on Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. I will." Is over and over go over again. Psalm one nineteen. Ms. Moore one nineteen. Obviously, I've quoted a lot from from this psalm over the years. Verses fifteen and sixteen says, "The voice." Excuse me. That's wrong. Here we go. I will meditate on your precepts and have respect unto your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In the New Testament, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark 8, 34. And when he had called the people unto him, that is Yeshua, with his disciples, also he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will come. So when this unnamed servant, a servant Eleazar says, what if they will not come? Well, if they will not, then the son's not going to return. It's it's those who will come is the focus of who his bride is. And finally, as we close the book of Hegeluda, Revelation 22, verse 17, it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that hear it say, come, and let him that is a thirst, come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. It's always been that, and we're seeing that also when he goes to find a bride here for Isaac in the land of the Chaldeans, which was where he came from. Now, as we continue on setting this foundation for when we get to the actual bride, which we haven't even got to yet, he goes on in verse 7 and says, Yahweh God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, this is Abraham speaking now, and who spoke unto me and who swore unto me, saying, Unto your seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and you shall take a wife unto my son from there. I believe this is a message saying that that he's... He's already made the preparation for these people. He's always been wooing his bride, if I can use that word, sending us a message before we come to a place of decision in our lives that he's already sent uh, his, the ministering angels and spirits ahead before us. And he spoke these things to the fathers and the prophets um, to woo his, and his message is to bring his people back into the house. And how is he accomplishing that? Well, there's a multitude of ways. 
not the least of which I've quoted in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 before, but I'm going to quote these verses again. How is the message of God's salvation sent out to the world? Because we've been typically trained to think that it's only if if someone's read a Bible or only if a missionary came over there and told them about Jesus or from a Hebrew roots point of view, told them about Yeshua. But God's not limited to that. God's word is in all of his creation. He's, it speaks of him, his salvation, his redemption, the, the, the fact of who he is and who we are. That's why in Psalm chapter 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So all his creation shows his glory and his handiwork. Day and to day utters speech. What does? The heavens the firmament, the creation. Night and tonight it shows knowledge. And it goes on to say in verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Everybody, no matter where you're at, yes, the guy on the island and, and, and all the people all over the world, there is no place, there is no language uh, uh, that, that someone speaks that their voice, the creation, is not heard. Their line goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tabernacle for the sun and so forth. And so this is how he has, through the centuries, been wooing people. Uh, how exactly does that work? I don't know. God is a big God and he's capable of doing these things. And all I know is what his re- word reveals to me about how awesome he is and how very in various and sundry ways he's been reaching out like a father or a mother who's lost their child in a shopping mall, trying to bring his children back into his house. And once again, I believe these ways of doing it is, is the word of Yahweh himself, because when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament collectively, you see that it is the word that quickeneth. It's the word of God that giveth life. It's the word of God that brings life into us. Now that word was manifested as Yeshua, the Messiah, but it did not cease to be the word. It's always been. It's the word that's from the beginning. When you read Yochanan chapter 1, it's the word that is in the beginning with God and was God. In Shemot or Exodus 23, 20. Exodus 23, 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared for you. A messenger is what that word is. We're all familiar with that word in Greek and Hebrew. It's a a messenger. We need to get this idea of these winged uh, uh, creatures and and so forth. It's a messenger. It doesn't specify uh, the essence of what the messenger is, but it is a a messenger delivers messages. It's my point. Acts 7, verse 35. Can, what we translate in English as an angel or a messenger, uh, can that be more than what we think it is? in which God has sent before in order to keep things in the way. Acts chapter 7, what did I say? 735. It says, This Moses, whom you they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Words were spoken out of that bush. And then finally in verse 8 says, And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this oath. Only do not bring my son there again. Do not take my son to where they are at. Bring them to where my son is at. 
In other words, we're not going back to the land from where we came from. We're bringing a wife from the land we came from to be one with me in my land, in my place. That's the picture consistently throughout Scripture. And so he is no fault lies with the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit didn't woo us and look and search for us. It's that the, the woman was not, or the bride, was not willing to go. That was the point. Not that the Holy Spirit did not reach all and give everyone a chance to say, I will or I won't or reject and so on and so forth. I think that's what's being taught there. Okay, next time we are going to continue on in Genesis chapter 24. We're now going to read about what Abraham tells his servant. He wants his servant to take with him where they're going to meet and the identification of the bride for Isaac of this woman who comes to the well. What are all the specific things that are going to identify and separate her from all the other women who are going to come to the well? Because there's going to be a lot of women coming up to the well that day, but it's the one who, who fulfills what the father has spoken from the beginning is his bride that's going to be the bride for his son. And I hope you see that very clearly as we continue in Genesis chapter 24, finding a bride for Isaac the story of the camels and the well. In the meantime, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand hand to do. We'll see you next time. Shalom Aleichem. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.